Hello everyone, thank you for taking your time to join in today's session. Welcome to this webinar on the topic of connected and automated vehicles open data. My name is Eliz and I'm the moderator today. If you need any technical support, please contact me through the questions box in your webinar toolbar. This webinar is proudly brought to you by OSRODS. OSRODS supports its member organisations, those listed here, to deliver an improved road transport network. OSRODS members are collectively responsible for managing 900,000 kilometres of roads, paid at more than $250 billion. Here at OSRODS, we use a program management approach where each program focuses on an operational area of the road system. This OSRODS project falls under the Connected and Automated Vehicles program. Today our expert panel will present for around 35 minutes and then we have 15 minutes at the end for a live Q&A. As always, we are recording today's session and we'll be sharing the footage on the conclusion of the webinar. We upload all of our webinar recordings on the site shown here and we'll email you once it's available. The presentation slides to this webinar is also available to download in the handout section. We encourage you to send us any questions you have for our presenters. Just type your questions into the question section in your sidebar anytime throughout the webinar. To help us answer your question, please let us know the slide number your question relates to. We'll then answer them during our live Q&A at the end. We do have a large audience joining us today and we'll try our best to answer as many questions as we can. All of OSRO's guides and publications are now free to access online or in PDF format. Simply create an account on our website to have access to these and to sign up for Roadwatch publication and webinar alerts. This webinar is based on a report that we released not long ago and we encourage you to download this report through the link or through the handout section in your sidebar. So without further delay, I'd like to introduce to you our panel of experts. First up, we have Chris Jones, who is Osteroids Project Manager Automated Vehicles. He's currently responsible for preparing frameworks for the deployment of automated vehicles across road operations and registration and licensing. Hi, Chris, good to have you join us. Hi, Liz, and welcome to our audience, wherever you may be. Our second speaker is Andrew Summers, who is a specialist consultant in smart mobility and runs a niche consultancy, TransOptum. He has 15 years experience in achieving real benefits through the intersection of transport and technology. Andrew was a lead researcher on this Osearch project, exploring the role of open data from road operators for connected and automated vehicles. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for presenting today. Thanks a lot, Liz. It's a pleasure to be here and welcome to all the attendees. Our third speaker is John Wall, who is Osroads Program Manager CAV and Manager of Road Safety Technology with Transport for New South Wales. He's recognised as one of Australia's leading specialists in the application of intelligent transport systems for road safety. Hi, John. How are you today? I'm well, Liz, and um, good afternoon to you and to our audience. And here's the structure of the webinar, and it's now time for me to pass it over to Chris Jones. Thanks, Elise. So just a quick overview of the agenda, and then we'll jump into presentations from the two stars of the show. Um, I'll briefly give a context and background to why we did this project. Um, and then I'll hand up, be handing over to Andrew Summers from TransOptum, who led the research work on this project uh, for us. He'll be presenting the bulk of today's content on project findings and key recommendations. We also thought it would be useful for our audience to hear about some of the practical real world efforts by road authorities to enhance data for CAV applications. 
So John Wall, um, who ho currently holds dual roles with um, both Transport for New South Wales and is Austroad's recently appointed CAV program manager, will give an update on their intelligent speed adaptation program. And to finish, I'll give a brief overview of some of the following on work that Austroads is proposing to advance on this topic in 2019. All three presenters will be available for a Q&A towards the end. So I'll, I'll kick off with the background and context to the project. Um, so before we get into that, I'll just, uh, it is custom for us to thank the project team who supported um, each of our Austroads projects. Um, our member agencies were vital to this project. As much of the work was uh, involved in this was around interviewing our jurisdictional members to understand the current state of play in producing data for connected and automated vehicles. I won't go through every name there, but we had a spread of expertise in this project from experts in spatial systems, ITS system engineering, CAV trials and policy experts. Um, we'd also really like to acknowledge the many businesses that were involved in interviews for this project as well. Uh, this project was a gap analysis format where we looked at what the future state should be as, as described or expressed to us from um, industries uh, across road, road mapping, road traffic information suppliers, data aggregators, vehicle manufacturers or OEMs as we sometimes refer to them and telcos, um, all of who are involved in the CAB ecosystem of data. Uh, finally, Stuart Belingle and Richard Zoe, Zoe um, who have also played key roles in guiding this project from within the Austroads team. Both have now moved on to new roles, but we'd like to take this opportunity um, to thank them for shaping the project. So where did this project come from? Um, the background to it was from the National Policy Framework for Land Transport Technology. Uh, this policy framework was endorsed by Australia's Transport Ministers in August 2016. Um, and in, in amongst a range of policy principles um, that go to how Australia's um, governments and road authorities should be preparing for the advent of new land transport technologies, including CAVs, um, is an action plan and the action plan refers to a range of actions for national agencies um, and states and territories. Uh, one of those actions is on the topic of data and in particular action 8 is the one that this project um, is, uh, has flown out of. Um, so you can read the action there up on the screen but this is, uh, it, it is action 8. Um, and our project really addresses one component of this, which is the data that road authorities should be producing that can be consumed by connected and automated vehicles to help support and accelerate their introduction across the road network. Another part, uh, important part to note about this action is that, um, the, one, the action supports an open by default uh, approach to data in alignment with most Australian government and state and territory government policies on data. Um, which is that we will achieve greater benefits by making data available to third parties to generate new services and products from. Um, there's often a bit of confusion around the topic of, of CAV data and who is doing what. So we also thought it was, it's important to outline some of the other aspects um, of data being generated by CAVs um, and which could be consumed by governments and which these topics are being addressed within other work programs. So the National Transport Commission is currently leading two projects which will consider how access to CAV data sets 
may be either regulated or potentially restricted to ensure the privacy of road users. Um, the NTC currently have an open consultation on this topic, so please head over to their website if you're interested in what they have to say or you want to make a, a submission. And secondly, the NTC are also considering the types of information that should be recorded by automated driving systems um, so that things like crash investigation and incident reporting can continue to function um, in future in vehicles where it may not be clear who is in control at the time of a crash or an incident. And finally, before I hand over to Andrew, um, just thought we'd uh, cover off the types of applications that we are focusing on in this project. So in preparing the project, we scanned the range of current and emerging applications which uh, could potentially include uh, consuming data from road authorities. As you can see there, um, this isn't a topic of future industry development. Uh, many of these applications are in current market vehicle. These data sets span real-time intelligent transport system applications, such as signal phasing and timing, uh, and spatial data such as speed zones or roadworks information. More detail on these can be found in the project report. And with that, I'm going to hand over to Andrew Summers to go through the key project findings and recommendations. Please use the chat bar at the side uh, of the GoToWebinar session to prepare any questions for Andrew, John and myself as we go through. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Chris, and hopefully the, uh, the screen's come up from my end uh, now so that uh, people can see the, uh, the presentation. As this uh, screen suggests, most of today we'll be looking at the findings and recommendations from the project. But before we get there, there's just two slides around the context for that. And the first is, if road operators are providing data to connect in automated vehicles, well, what data is it that CAVs use and, and how do they use that data? And one of the most meaningful things we've found to try and explore this is this representation here, which is off the basis of a local dynamic map. But it shows that uh, the connected and automated vehicles consume from a variety of sources some uh, permanent static data. That's essentially the, uh, the underlying map uh, in quite a high resolution. Things that are classed as transient static data, so things that move occasionally, uh, but not that often, such as traffic signs and some landmarks. Transient dynamic data, so things that are changing fairly regularly, uh, signal phase and timing is, is one of those, but also some of the road conditions like a slippery road. Uh, and, and lastly, highly dynamic data, uh, things that are really instantaneous in their nature, such as the positions and trajectories of, of vehicles and pedestrians. So road operators have some data of some types of some different natures that can contribute to this. But one of the first things that we see is that a connected automated vehicle needs to consume data from its own sensors as well as from any mapping type of sources. Uh, and it needs data also beyond which the road operator could provide. We also did find in, in going through this that, uh, that the control decisions made by the vehicles, such as whether to brake, to accelerate and where to steer are being made primarily on data from vehicle sensors. Uh, whereas the mapping data is most useful for understanding what lies ahead beyond the range of the sensors and, and what to expect as the vehicle drives. The next question we looked at for context is, if road operators are going to provide data to connected and automated vehicles, what is it that they're seeking to achieve? 
and how would this justify an investment and assist in targeting any investment? And the consistent message we had from road operators on this was that the primary objective being sought is that combination of improved safety, improved efficiency, improved environmental benefits from connected and automated vehicle deployment, and that any investment in CAV open data would be justified if it assisted to overcome barriers to CAV deployment. And so it's very much achieving sort of a subsidiary objective. Uh, but what was quite useful about this was that there was clarity shared amongst road operators that this was the, uh, the goal and safety was generally the dominant objective within that, which is uh, why we've chosen the imagery we have there. We do have a lot of traffic regulations out on the road network currently, and we have a lot of human drivers for which that communication of the traffic regulations has been designed. So things like traffic signs, traffic signals, and line marking are what are used to communicate to humans currently. They're also what all the road rules around Australia and New Zealand reflect as being the regulatory source. So we know that connected and automated vehicles will try and interpret these, but of course they perceive the environment differently to how humans perceive the environment. And this opens up often a discussion of different methods of traffic restrictions being communicated to connected and automated vehicles. Uh, and, but that then also raises some questions around achieving consistency in that messaging where you've got parallel methods. It's not an unknown problem in that the audio tactile push buttons at pedestrian crossings are an example of where this occurs today. For most road users, the primary communication source is visual. The, uh, the green man and red man, or at a select number of crossings across Australia now, also uh, green lady and, uh, and red lady. But for a small group of road users who are visually impaired, it's important to provide them with a way of interpreting that critical information, and that's done through the audio tactile function. But that's a very tightly tied together communication then of the same message at the same location to ensure the consistency is maintained. So if we think about this as a much broader sense for all types of data that could be out there, speed limit signs, uh, any uh, layout of, of roadwork sites, how is it you could achieve consistency in this much more varied environment? Uh, and the first thing that you could say is, well, you don't necessarily need it, but we don't agree that that's the case. You could use alternative methods for humans to connect and automated vehicles and achieve perfect consistency. And we say that in some cases that's possible, but for us, the primary method is that the connected and automated vehicle must respond to the same signs, lines, and signals as the human for the foreseeable future while humans are sharing the road with connected and automated vehicles. And that's strongly on the basis of the impracticality of guaranteeing perfect consistency otherwise. Uh, you can do it in some cases, but you can't necessarily do it in every case all the time. And that would then have the effect of applying a different traffic restriction to the connected and automated vehicle as a human, uh, as well as departing from how the road rules are currently set up and managed. The implication of this is that even if we are to complement road signs, lines and traffic signals by other methods, the signs, lines and signals remain the authority of regulatory devices for that transition period. That 
does align quite well with how the auto manufacturers are seeing the situation as they look at achieving global scale in a variety of markets because uh, the human extent of driving at the moment is absolute, which means that everywhere has these signs, lines and signals. Uh, whereas anything that we do that's a, an alternative to that will have a more limited deployment. The other thing that this does assist it to be the case is that the road authority data or road operator data that's being provided to be treated as informative to insist interpretation rather than being treated as authoritative. Uh, and in almost all cases, that means that where a sensor detects something that differs from a data point that is received through another source, that the vehicle will trust its sensors and not the background data or not the communicated data. Uh, and there's only a very small number of departures from that occurring. If we look now at sort of how ready are we for road operators to start providing this data, three of the questions that we sort of looked at in that is to whether the data is available with the quality and competence needed to be meaningful to connected automated vehicles, uh, whether standards are clear for all of the construction of the data messages, how they're communicated, and potentially even how they're used, and whether the services to provide that data are in fact already active and operational. And what we see perhaps unsurprisingly is a somewhat mixed picture. So in the areas where there's real-time traffic management control systems for traffic signals, for managed motorways, the data that is available is probably pretty close to fit for purpose or actually fit for purpose. There's a high degree of confidence most of the time that what the traffic management system thinks is happening is actually happening and the data is already electronically available and hence easier to, uh, to communicate and distribute. In the area of traffic signal phase and timing or SPAT messaging, there's also much greater adoption, agreement, alignment in the standard space around the SPAT messaging. Uh, and some uh, pilot deployments already occurring within Australia, not perhaps yet going beyond the pilot, uh, but certainly pilot deployments and readiness activities are occurring. When we look at temporary conditions associated with works, incidents and events, this is one of the areas that's been identified uniformly as very much of interest to connect and automated vehicles. But road operators don't have perfect knowledge about every work, event and incident across their road network at the level of detail and confidence required to be most meaningful to connect an automated vehicle. Uh, so for many events or works that occur, a road operator might know that maybe something will occur somewhere near something. However, you want a lot more detail around exactly what, exactly where and exactly when for the connected and automated vehicle to be able to make most use of it. Uh, so this is both an area of significant opportunity and an area of significant challenge. Uh, and it's one where there is some international progress being driven through the, the US Department of Transportation. John will talk a little bit more around the specific example of a speed limit information uh, later, uh, but that was another of the priority data types that was identified. Looking out to the model and, and the open data policies, the open data policies are pretty broadly across Australia. Uh, federally, yes, states, yes, local government, sometimes. But what open data policies generally require is for road operators to make available that data that they already have available. And one of the things that was highlighted through this project is that 
the data that's already available might have some value to get in automotive vehicles, but it's not really what, it, what they're looking for. So that generally means better data is required and to get better data often requires better business processes. And this brings in the question of additional costs. Uh, and the open data model closes down some of the challenges that could be, or some of the channels that could be used to fund these additional costs. And so the question of business models arises as to how government would go about doing that. Uh, and there's a fair bit more discussion on this topic within the, uh, the report itself as for other areas. Open data is also a government policy. It's the level to which it applies to private roads is, is unclear. Uh, it's not necessarily explicitly called out in concession arrangements. Uh, and as a separate but related note, around the world, road operators are taking the position that they will not accept liability for the data they're supplying through these methods. And that's generally accepted by the customers and the users of the data that this will be the case. Uh, that road operators at least will not provide those guarantees. But the questions around what duty of care road operators may or may not have both to supply data and to make sure that that data is fit for purpose uh, is something that uh, was able to be raised in the report, uh, but we couldn't come to a firm conclusion on. There is a model emerging as a general model for the ecosystem in which data will move from road operators through to being consumed by the vehicles. And in many cases, that will involve some sort of intermediary, be it a map maker, be it a data integrator. Generally, a private sector body of some sort is seen as playing that role. And some of the big mapping companies that, uh, that wish to play that role are fairly well known. A couple of important things that come out with this diagram along with it is that the vehicle is potentially getting all of its map type data from a map maker but the map maker is not getting all of its data only from the road operator, that there are very many other data sources, including the surveys and collection directly by the map makers that are being used to assemble this data that's required. And importantly also, road operators are interested in getting data back from connected and automated vehicles to improve data sets. And we'll come to that in more detail on the next slide. As we work through what role a national body might play in this space, there was pretty broad support for the national body to act as an advocate for good practice when it came to a question as to whether a national body should be acting as a data aggregator. The support was much weaker for that. The primary reason was around timing or latency to use a more ICT term. So, the time elapsed from the change of a road attribute, a new speed limit, through to that being communicated to the vehicle is seen as really important. Uh, and the uh, examples where national aggregators are currently used uh, are not delivering anywhere near the latency that would be required for this new business purpose. So if we look at data back from connected and automated vehicles, this project really tried to focus and tried to solely focus on data going from road operators to vehicles and not in the other direction uh, so that it would fit that gap with the NTC projects. But we couldn't and shouldn't escape from that opportunity that with all the sensors on board the vehicles, that the vehicle collected data, CAV originated data can be used to improve road operator data sets 
both for general purposes and then so that the road operators would supply better data back to the vehicles. Uh, and that's why we've called this a virtuous circle. There was really strong interest from road operators and actually across the industry that this should occur. Uh, and there was fairly universal interest from road operators in processed intelligence. And by that, we mean where something differs from what the baseline data source might have said. A roadworks that was in a different location to expected, a speed limit that was different to expected, those sorts of things. There was also some interest from the road operators in receiving CITS messages as a more raw form of data. Uh, but others had a view that the processing effort required to make the intelligence from that may make it difficult to, to get full value. So that was an area where there was a little bit more variance within the road operators, but pretty strong interest in the processed uh, variance information. All parties can benefit from this model. Uh, it, it is a win-win-win in terms of the different parties involved, including if map makers or data aggregators are sitting as intermediaries. But of course, there's a lot of things that need to be worked out for it to get into wider practice. There are a small number of examples of where we're seeing this already occur, uh, but it's still quite early days in terms of quite how this will play out. And quite early days as to exactly how this will play out was perhaps a theme overall for this particular project. The future general shape of the CAV data ecosystem is taking, is taking form. But when you get to detailed implementation guidance, there's so many variables still up in the air that it's hard to provide specific guidance just yet. And so what this project's recommended is a phase of active learning and developing guidance through that process towards in future releasing a roadmap, best practice guidance, and then switching focus to supporting change. Uh, importantly, that involves leveraging those existing initiatives that, uh, that state road operators and private road operators are already doing. And we'll hear a little bit from, uh, from John next about some work that New South Wales has done that provides some valuable lessons learnt for managing data supply to vehicles. Uh, and also to select and participate actively in those emerging standards internationally. There's quite a lot of standards emerging internationally. Uh, and so some care needs to be taken as to, uh, to which ones and, and how, uh, but very clear support from across the stakeholder group, government and in industry that Australia would not go it alone, but, but would leverage international practice absolutely as fully as possible. Uh, and with that, I'll uh, hand over to John. Thank you, Andrew. What I'd like to do now is actually take you through a practical example of uh, a government road authority working to initially capture and then maintain a set of data um, around a road attribute, namely speed limit. So we'll dive into what has been a decade-long experience for us in our work in intelligent speed adaptation. A little bit of background though, that around 40% of deaths and injuries on our road, um, well, sorry, in, in terms, 40% in terms of deaths on our roads 
has speeding as a contributing factor, around 23% of road users. These figures are a little bit old from a previous presentation, but we know in 2016, uh, almost 160 people just died in New South Wales in a speeding-related crash, and uh, just over 2,800 were seriously injured. There is a technology, though, that uh, we first became aware of here in New South Wales around about uh, 2005, um, known then as intelligent speed adaptation, or today in some circles, intelligent speed assistance, where simply the car knows the speed limit of the road. It has the ability to warn the driver when it's when the driver is speeding, so that's an advisory system. A supportive system is where the system's integrated with the vehicle's throttle and braking systems, but can be overridden by the driver at any time. And then a limiting system where the vehicle just cannot exceed the speed limit. We launched a major project in 2008 and 2009, a, a trial of this technology, uh, looking purely at the advisory side of things, so providing our drivers with both a visual warning and an audible warning when they were exceeding the speed limit. And we modelled the effects of that 1.9 million vehicle, uh, million kilometre trial, so it was a big trial. And we found around 19% uh, reduction in fatalities and the same around injured road users from the use of this what seems to be a simple system. We just warn you when you travel over the speed limit. But behind that simple system there were a number of barriers to this wide-scale deployment within our state and I would expect it to be the same throughout Australia and New Zealand. The first one was the cost of the device used in the trial and this is an actual photo of that device. We're talking here just at the time of the launch of the iPhone in 2007. Um, so very, very early days in the smartphone revolution that we've seen. Back in those days, this device had to be hardwired into the vehicle. It cost us around about $1,500 and more than $10 a month just in telecommunications charges to keep the system running. When we compare that though with our drivers who did see a benefit in the technology and did see a safety benefit in using this, the willingness to pay didn't relate to the actual device itself. So willingness to pay for the technology was around anywhere between 60 to $120 was the maximum amount people were willing to pay for a system to go in, remembering the system cost us $1,500 and then had ongoing costs as well. A major barrier as well was that we had no statewide accurate maps of the speed limit, so we mapped in great detail the trial area, but not the state as such. We did have the ability to produce a map of speed limits uh, with uh, our own resources in roads and maritime services at the time, but that wasn't a map that a computer or a system like this could read. It was a wonderful paper map, but when we dived down into it, there were lots of gaps that were maybe only 10 or 20 metres long, and on a map you couldn't perceive, but certainly it was perceived by a system, uh, a digital system that was trying to read that. In 2014, uh, we actually launched the first uh, ISA smartphone application um, by any government road authority in Australia. Um, we were able to smash the barrier of cost in terms of a particular device and made it available free of charge thanks to the um, 
support of our minister at the time. To date, we've got more than 164,000 downloads of that application. But the actual system itself does rely on a number of significant data sets that the transport operator has to supply. And our customers expect that any, that information is going to be up to date. So to give you a bit of an idea of the data involved with it, there's more than 223,000 kilometres of speed zones actually included within the application. And this is an important thing to note that a single section of road can include multiple zones. For example, a school zone, which is only active during school times, a truck and bus speed limit, which is only active when you're driving a truck or bus. And then we even have winter speed limits in our Alpine areas as well. In addition to that, we also sourced data from other areas. So we've got a two-year calendar of school holidays, which relates to the school zone attribute, as well as an almanac for sunrise and sunset time. So the application automatically dims on sunset, thus reducing glare and the distraction associated with that for users in low light conditions. The different sources of data include our Transport for New South Wales Speedlink 2 uh, management system in which the road authorities store, change and review speed limit information. We saw some from our commercial provider, which at the moment is TomTom. School holidays from the Department of Education and sunset and sunrise times from Geoscience Australia. A little bit more on the corporate speed zone management system. So this is meant to be the source of truth for speed zones, uh, which are regulatory system, obviously, uh, here within New South Wales. We first started to develop this more than 11 years ago. It's an integrated speed zone management application that supports the whole end-to-end, -end, everything from planning the zone in the beginning right through to approval and sign-off at the zone at the end. And all of that happens within the speed zone management system, which today is called Speedlink 2. We're also able to report capability around speed zone management activities, do reviews and track the approvals and changes in zones and have a historical aspect to that as well. Even though we had that system up and running, the Speedlink 2 system, we found that it wasn't actually suitable for the application that we needed. We needed a commercial data source, and that's where we went to originally Census, uh, which were, uh, was a Telstra company. Now uh, that company is owned uh, and the products by TomTom in the Netherlands. And what we do is we, we combine both of those to produce the system that we've got. So we send all of our signed data to TomTom. Uh, they take that, massage it, put it into their own system, do their own quality checks. So they're the ones that are guaranteeing the quality of that particular area, not the road authority. But they're also updating that. So for example, when their own survey vehicles find a change, they'll update that and we'll get that information back as well. So it sounds pretty simple, but just doing this area of speed zones and static signs actually has cost quite a deal of money, uh, a lot of effort, and it also hasn't been plain sailing. And I think it sets up for a lot of challenges for us in managing more dynamic data into the future. So back to Chris, I think. Thanks, John. Um, 
So look, uh, as as described uh, by John and Andrew, there is more work uh, that we feel is needed in this area. Um, as recommended in the report, there are a range of logical next steps uh, that should be taken to continue Australia's road authority progress to supporting more near real-time uh, information for connected automated vehicles. Um, in anticipation of this, we've recently scoped out a project concept to go to the Austroads upcoming board meeting um, to ensure that our work is not just left here. Uh, this project, if approved, will commence in 2019 and addressed finding 16, which is that there is broad support for a national body to act as an advocate for good practices in data for connected and automated vehicles. We already have many jurisdictions developing systems um, to capture more real-time dynamic changes to data sets and speed zones is a very good example. I think um, most jurisdictions now have some process in place, um, but there is no sense in Australia really of learning from one another um, as to what might be best practice um, or achieving or how we might go about achieving a level of quality across borders that encourages the vehicle industry globally to look at as Australia as a place um, to deploy connected and automated vehicles as we are able to achieve a level of national uniformity. Uh, we think Austroads is a logical organisation to develop uh, and house these guidelines as we already do this uh, for physical infrastructure such as traffic management, asset management, road design, uh, but at this stage, not digital infrastructure. So our project concepts, which we've um, it, titled RADCAV, or Road Authority Data for Connected and Automated Vehicles, um, is being proposed to address this gap. Uh, the project will start by considering the already good work going on within the road authorities, um, such as the speed zone work in New South Wales, uh, Big Roads Managed Motorway data sets um, and Queensland's uh, Roadworks data uh, initiatives. Uh, from those case studies, we'll be able to share um, some learnings that we've already adopted to date. Um, but also in the initial phases of this project, we'll be preparing a roadmap um, to identify what further data sets um, we should be agreeing on and settling on uh, across road authorities in the coming years. We'll then commence to produce guidelines um, to achieve a sense of harmonisation and consistency across the road authorities. Um, as Andrew discussed, we'll also look to leverage work that is occurring overseas so that we can remain consistent internationally where possible, such as the US Federal Highways Administration's work on road work zones or the European ERDICO, the ITS Institute in Europe's work on other spatial information to support CAVs. Um, we'll help to also maintain a catalogue of data sets across road authorities uh, and monitor jurisdictional member progress um, to see where change is occurring across Australia so that we can start to build some small wins and then escalate up to more widespread data across Australia in time. Finally, there's a very strong intention in this project to engage with industry to ensure whatever guidance we produce um, works for connected and automated vehicle products, both in production and in development. Um, and as part of that, hopefully also uh, aiming to achieve the virtuous cycle that Andrew mentioned before, and look at where there may be some logical exchanges of data back to road authorities to enhance our data. So with that, I am going to hand back to Aliz um, to go through the Q&A session now with all three presenters. Hi, Liz. 
Yeah, thanks, Chris. So just a reminder to our audience to send through your questions to the questions box. And thank you to those who have sent those questions through already. So the first question we received is, is the CAV data, is it already available for researchers? So can you explain this? Uh, so the data, I, I think that there's probably two types of that. There's the data from connected and automated vehicles and the data that road operators could supply to connected and automated vehicles to use. Uh, I won't talk too much about data generated from connected and automated vehicles because that was outside of scope for this project. But in terms of the data that is available for road authorities, there's quite a few data sets that are already available on different open data portals. Uh, open data hubs uh, nationally, often data. Uh, whichever state.gov.au. What we identified with that though is that's where the open data policy says to release that which you have. Uh, and perhaps one of the big gaps that this project identified is that in many cases, what road authorities have isn't exactly what it is that connected automated vehicles would need. And the practical example that was was John's. Uh, insights into New South Wales, where they started their journey in the speed limit data they have versus ultimately what it was necessary to get that data to be useful uh, in the form of that application. So there's plenty of data available on an as-is basis, uh, but really what what road operators have, the open data policy is already compelling them to release, uh, but it may not be fit for connected and automated vehicle consumption purposes, at least not optimised for it. So Andrew, I've got a, a great example there in terms of speed limit data. So we, we need a spatially referenced file of speed signs or at least uh, vectors or lines of speed zones that go onto a map. And I don't think any of the road authorities have released that yet, but some uh, road authorities have released speed zone data, but it's a PDF map of speed zones for their particular state, which of course can't be read at all by uh, a connected or, or automated vehicle. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for answering Andrew and John. So the next question is, it's, it's a statement and a question. So trouble with data requirements is that crashes are very rare. So as with Google for a long time, there was no meaningful crash data, yet as today, crash rates are much too high. So what is proposed to deal with this? Yeah, look, I might take that um, question because um, it's, I think it's a broader question um, that does go to the concept of data from connected and automated vehicles, um, but which I think is probably being addressed within the National Transport Commission's work. Um, so they are currently considering what is being known or is being referred to as a safety assurance system uh, for automated vehicles, which would uh, outline a range of safety criteria to which vehicles may uh, need to comply with as they enter the market. So currently we don't necessarily have any safety criteria uh, that an automated vehicle would need to comply with other than what's in our current trial guidelines. But in future, this is a draft, uh, gap that um, we recognise needs to be addressed. And so within some of those safety criteria could be the types of information that is required to be recorded um, by an automated driving system entity or the company that is effectively designing um, and supplying an automated driving system to the Australian market. And so that could include data fields such as um, 
who was in control of the vehicle at the time of the crash, what were the circumstances in the crash, uh, what, what was the driver doing prior to a crash, um, and what was the vehicle doing. So there's a range of inform information that could be captured, um, and I think that's probably where um, that question, the answer to that question um, could come from. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Thanks for answering. The next question we received is from Daniel. So apart from speed adaptation, is there any exception that CAV should be adapted? For instance, green traffic light and green pedestrian light are likely lit on the same same traveling direction in particular vehicle is allowed to turn left when pedestrian is crossing on their green. So is there any guideline for CAV to interact with type four highly dynamic data? Uh, so this is, uh, a core part of designing a, uh, a vehicle that has an automated driving capability to be safe. Uh, and so the rules by which that would or demonstration as to what that means for safety is something that would then fit within the, the safety assurance uh, system uh, process that the, the National Transport Commission is developing. So within this project, we looked at uh, really the communication of traffic signal information from the traffic signals into the vehicle so that they would know uh, what the road authority is, is doing in terms of providing a green light at a particular moment or not. And the standards for that are fairly well established now. So this is where the signal phase and timing standards that have been developed through CITS. Uh, there was really good broad support for the use of that. And, uh, and for that to be used to support how a connected automated vehicle would understand what the traffic signal uh, state is. So the, the primary method is still the visual recognition by the vehicle sensor of the traffic signal lanterns, but there are conditions under which that can be difficult or, or have ambiguity, uh, you know, low angle sun, complex intersections. And so the data then really assists in interpreting uh, that situation uh, for it. In terms of the vehicle then detecting pedestrians and the ability to say, hang on, I've got a green arrow, but there's a pedestrian as an object in my way, I'm not going to proceed. Uh, that really comes into the broader process of developing automated driving systems. Uh, and they're the sort of things we'd expect to be covered off. Uh, for instance, for a vehicle manufacturer to say, yes, my vehicle's safe to, uh, to operate. And, and that detection of pedestrians, objects and and not proceeding into them is, is something that uh, uh, has been fairly core to development of automated vehicles and has been a, a question of testing uh, for the different cab trials that are happening nationally uh, at the moment. Yeah, thanks Andrew. I hope that's answered your question, Daniel. So we have a question specifically to John. So John, do you see a time where speed limits are prescribed to roads predictively based on their characteristics rather than manually mapped and then collated and then communicated? Wow, what a great question. Um, ever, I don't know. I, I think that will be so difficult in, in some ways and even doing things like prescribing the, the minimum length that that would apply to, you know, so you don't have a hysteresis effect where uh, the system's 
um, even seeing light and dark and, and moving up and down between, oh, it's light here, so therefore we can do 60, or oh, it's a bit darker, we should drop to 40. I don't know, I think it's a recipe for uh, for travel sickness um, in some ways. I, I think we're a long way for that. I think what we need to do is it's not just about the speed limit that applies immediately to the location that you're at, but it's also about what's coming up and and how we we look at the entire route that someone is travelling along as well. Um, and I guess different vehicles have different requirements as well, and we need to work with that in terms of if you've got a heavy vehicle, um, the safest speed for you to travel around that, you know, particularly windy section of road may be a lot less than for a lighter vehicle. So I think where I sit at the moment is I, I can't see that happening in the future. I think we will still prescribe lengths of road and that will be done by looking at all the road characteristics and the use of the road and traffic volumes um, and hopefully following the safe systems approach to make sure that whatever speed we're travelling at, we can manage that kinetic energy if something goes wrong and prevent deaths and injuries on the network. Yeah, excellent. Um, so I just might add a little to that, uh, Liz, if I might. Um, I mean, one of the other observations uh, that we had in this report was that we're likely to be operating a mixed environment of uh, both vehicles with capabilities to read traffic signs, uh, receive messages from road authorities about what a speed zone might be, uh, but also human uh, drivers on the road uh, for at least the next sort of 20 years um, so in that environment, um, we, we have to be able to support both. Um, and at this stage in Australia, it really is the traffic sign on the side of the road or the traffic signal at the intersection that is the regulatory source. And I think it would be quite challenging um, and quite a long transition for us to be able to move there. But in future, perhaps as we move to a fully automated vehicle environment, that type of thing um, maybe has been envisaged and may be possible. Yeah, thanks for adding on, Chris. Next question is from Jennifer from NHVR. So she's asked, what is the potential for data about mass limits on roads or bridges to be used to control heavy vehicles? Yeah, I'm happy to take this one. So this, uh, absolutely, there's a number of different attributes when we're talking about sort of the traffic restrictions. Uh, so the things that are sort of in that same category as speed limits and height weight type of restrictions is certainly a, a part of that. Uh, it's also interesting when we look at uh, sort of some of the few examples we could find where uh, an electronic document currently was actually uh, determining, was the authoritative source as opposed to a sign on the side of the road uh, and restricted access vehicle permits or things in that category uh, or one of the cases where that already was the situation where an electronic document or data of some sort is actually the thing that takes precedence uh, over uh, sometimes roadside signs, uh, whereas in every other case, it was the sign took precedence over any documents that might exist. So definitely height and weight type of restrictions, absolutely a key data source, uh, but from a type of data source type, uh, they're sort of grouped in that same category of speed limits and for for reasons of brevity is why we haven't called them out as separate. Thanks, Andrew. 
So the next question is a really interesting question. So there are significant numbers of variable speed zones. Some have a set timetable and some are varied by authorities. So how are these managed? Uh, yeah, so at the moment, I guess, uh, you're right, we have, we have our standard variable speed limits, for example, um, in uh, many of our states, school zones, of course, in Victoria, we have our, our shopping centre uh, precincts uh, and those sorts of things. Um, they're, they're generally a set time and, and so that's a lot easier to manage than electronic variable speed limits. Um, which are a bit of a combination. So in some circumstances, those signs are, are dropped at a set time of day to help manage uh, traffic throughput and those sorts of things. And other times it's very much about incident management. Um, so that if there is uh, an incident or we do have maintenance workers on the road, we can drop that down. Um, that information is generally stored um, at least here in New South Wales in a central management system um, but it's not routinely exported as such and I think that's one of the challenges in what format do you export that in there are ways we can communicate with a connected vehicle for example by providing information directly through say a dedicated short-range communication system um, and ACMA of course uh, earlier this year licensed 5.9 gigahertz to do that particular work in DSRC uh, which brings us to an equivalent use of a radio frequency in both North America and Europe. I might hand over to Andrew, he might be able to talk a little bit more in depth around things like electronic speed limits and, and how that data is kept and um, transferred. Yeah, so in terms of, uh, this was one of the areas of low hanging fruit potentially in getting something out where road operators have good access to data uh, currently, uh, but that's only partially true. So we've, we've managed motorways type of environments, so overhead verbal speed limits on, on freeways as exists in some of the Australian cities. Uh, that data is normally pretty accessible to be gotten out in a form that could be consumed by a connected automated vehicle. Uh, and indeed, that's part of the uh, the project example that would be looked to be included for Victoria as part of that RADCAV follow-on. Uh, for school speed signs and so forth, uh, in Victoria at least, it's in a separate control system uh, and it's, uh, it's in a form that's a bit less accessible for that purpose, uh, but still potentially accessible. Uh, and then in terms of the how you would get that data to the vehicle, uh, you could have some form of transmitter with the sign uh, using the CITS method that John mentioned or some form of uh, you know, center to center or system to system type of method uh, or API uh, which is what Victoria is progressing for the uh, the managed motorways data. What there isn't as clearly in this space so internationally is a standard data structure for the message uh, to be used for that. There is for the roadside transmission uh, the in-vehicle information CITS message, but when we talk about the um, the APIs, it, it's not it's not yet there in the international standard sense uh, for providing that data in real time. So there's certainly good access to bits of it uh, to get out into vehicles, but uh, but not uniformly and with some variance. And this comes back again to why we're saying that there needs to be that phase of a uh, bit more in-depth investigation, learning, and working with the good initiatives that are progressing. Uh, to, to try and advance the state of practice. 
Yeah, great. Thanks for answering, Andrew and John. So last question we have time for is, did the project look at combining data from different sources and develop a portal for open source data? So the portals generally do exist for open source data at the moment. That's the data.state.gov.au uh, is generally the, the primary data portal. We did look at the question as to what role a national aggregator could potentially play uh, if they were to sort of either act as an aggregator or a modifier or, or some other process around the data. Uh, and there wasn't universal support from that. Uh, and some concerns about the uh, the timeframes in, in which that would occur uh, from the collection of data through to the, uh, the making it available. So there are access to data available already on those open data portals and, and they are fairly well used. The big weakness again though is the data that's available to them. So the open data policy says you must provide what you have and, and that's in progress in terms of being implemented. It's not always universally there yet. Uh, but a big area of weakness is that connected and automated vehicles would benefit from something better than what road operators currently have. Uh, and because they don't have it and they don't have the business processes around it uh, is why the gap might come. Uh, and lastly on that, I'd highlight though that it may not be government that acts as, as the aggregator in that model. When we looked at the ecosystem uh, model, there are a number of private companies that are very much seeing a commercial role for themselves to act as data aggregators, intermediaries, map makers, and for them to be the ones combining disparate data sources and, uh, and selling that onto vehicles. Uh, and there are some global companies doing that as well as some, some local ones. Uh, and there's been a lot of progress in that space. So internationally, it's more likely that that aggregation type of function will happen through the private sector. Uh, and that seems to be the direction the international market is moving. Great. Thanks, Andrew. So unfortunately, time has crept up on us, so we'll have to start wrapping up this session shortly. We do apologise if we weren't able to answer your question during the Q&A. We had lots of questions come through, but what we'll do is we'll prepare written responses to the questions and we'll email those who's asked. But you can get in contact if you have further inquiries in the future. Before we close, here is a list of upcoming webinars that we have. I'd like to bring your attention to an upcoming webinar on Osro's evaluation of the European CITS platform, including threat, vulnerability and risk analysis. So this is on 6th of December. The following week we'll hold another webinar on CITS compliance assessment framework for Australia and New Zealand and we'll also have international presenters from Switzerland and Germany joining us. So please go on our website for more information and to register. And also we encourage you to watch our webinar recordings on the go through our podcast. Just search for Osroad on your podcast app to subscribe. As we close, we encourage you to answer a quick survey after the webinar. You can give us your feedback and also suggestions on topics you'd like us to cover in the future. Again, I'd like to thank our audience who have been engaging with us throughout the webinar and we hope you gain some value out of this session. And of course, thank you to Chris, Andrew and John for being our speakers today. Thanks, Olivia. Thank you. I'll end this session now. So see you later, everyone.